Well, Jesus was the first man to actually rise from the dead. Do you ever think about that? The first man to ever rise from the dead. And after that, many others have risen. Even today, in his name, many rise from the dead. There's no other founder of any religion that is alive today. Um, Buddha is dead. Muhammad is dead. In fact, even Krishna is dead. But Jesus is alive. It's, it's not to put down on any other any religion because Jesus actually didn't come to set up as a religion. He didn't come as a religious man. He came as a king. And he proved his kingship. He proved his authority by being the first to rise from the dead. And that's a, that's a reality that we celebrate uh, in our country and in our world today. Millions and millions of people celebrate the reality that Jesus rose. In fact, it's been proven in a court of law that Jesus actually lived and that he rose from the dead. I don't know if you're aware of that, but it's not just a fairy tale. Jesus is alive. And there's millions today that testify of that. In fact, even when Jesus was buried in that tomb, the Roman garrison that was put to protect that tomb actually risked their lives in, in, in guarding that tomb. They risked their careers in the sense that the Roman authorities uh, gave so much punishment and disgrace uh, to those guards that were guarding the tomb but the, the, the resurrection power of Christ was so great that it pushed back the tomb and uh, the angel of the Lord came and blinded or whatever uh, the process was but that Roman garrison uh, had no say whatsoever in even trying to protect the body of Jesus and in fact his disciples, his followers at that time were scared cats and they were hiding in fear. But the resurrected Christ came and appeared to them and revealed himself to them. And he turned timid, scared, little, frightened human beings who were frightened of their life into bold warriors who went around the known world and proclaimed the reality of the resurrection of Christ and that reality is still being proclaimed today. So we see in this world good men die and religious men die. And I had this phrase going through my head this morning that uh, Elvis has left the room. <laughs> I don't know what that means to you. But Elvis was a very popular man and there's been very good men. There's been popular men like Gandhi who are no longer with us today. But I don't know when Elvis used to do what well, I've heard. I never went to one of Elvis concerts. <laughs> I don't know what year he finished uh, doing concerts. But he was so popular that after his concert, people would stay for hours so 
someone had to come up and announce that Elvis has left the room. <laughs> but Elvis, even though he may bless your life with music, he never rose from the dead. He left the room. But Jesus, he left the tomb. But he's alive today. And he wants to come into your life today with his reality. The reality of the life of God. So for this morning's reading, I, I would like us to, if you have a Bible and would like to follow along, if you, if you could have a look at John chapter 2. Topic of discussion today is temple renovation. Temple renovation. Renovation, sometimes it's messy, uh, but you, you have to break a few eggs to cook a cake, right? <laughs> and uh, we just want to invite the Lord Jesus into our lives to renovate what he needs to renovate in order that we would be a people pleasing to him, that he would come into our church and that he would do the necessary renovations, that he would do the necessary adjustments in order that we would uh, give him glory. That's my prayer and that has been my prayer this week. Uh, this is a time of Passover and uh, we're going to read from John chapter 2 verse 13 to 21 and it's a time when Jesus at the start of his ministry came into the temple and he did a renovation. He cleaned it out of some stuff uh, that wasn't pleasing to his father. So John chapter 2 verse 13. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves. And the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the changes money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, take these things away and do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten me up. So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show us since you do these things? In other words, what right do you have to come into this temple and turn everything upside down? And Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And we know that Jesus was speaking about his body being the temple. Then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So renovation is messy in the natural but also spiritually. Spiritual renovation is also messy and uh, the Bible tells us that where there is no oxen the crib is clean but increase comes by the strength of the ox and when the ox is strong there's a smell associated with the ox 
there's mess associated with the labor of the ox. Increase comes, and in these days, his kingdom is increasing and religion is decreasing. It's been a messy season for the church, not this, this particular family, but around the world. It's been a messy season, but it's a season of increase. It's a season of the reduction of vain religion. But it's a season of increase of genuine encounters with the living God, with the resurrected Christ. So for whatever reason you came this morning, let us focus, as we were encouraged right at the start of worship, on the main event. Jesus is the reason that we are here. And when he went through the temple, when he went through that place with the whip of cords, his disciples recognized there was such verminent zeal in his life, such passion and such anger towards the religion of the day. And, but I can see from Jesus' life that that, that anger is fueled by pure love for his people. And that the love of God is, is so, uh, so fiery and so fueled by zeal uh, that it, it reflects on how much he cares about his people, or how much he cares about you, that you would encounter him, that you wouldn't just encounter religion and that you wouldn't be distracted by formalities. So this is the time of the Passover, and we know about the Passover for those uh, who are not so familiar with it. Uh, we know the children of Israel, God's people, were slaves in Egypt for 400 years. And God heard the cry of his people, and he raised up Moses. And the Bible tells us that he heard the cry of, the children, of his children's hearts when they were afflicted by their taskmasters, the Egyptians. And he raised up Moses to go and deliver his people. And the deliverance came through a series of plagues over Egypt, a series of judgment. Ten plagues came over Egypt. The last one was the angel of death that passed over Egypt and killed all the firstborn of every family. Except for those who had taken the blood of a lamb and sprinkled it on the doorposts of their house. When the angel of the Lord passed over, he saw the blood. And that protected the people inside that house. So all those who had the blood of the Lamb were freed from the wrath to come. And the Passover celebration was once a year and where many hundreds of thousands would come into Jerusalem, into Judea, and they would celebrate this feast and it was, a, it was a massive religious gathering and it brought much wealth and income into the country. It was similar to, to like a, a, uh, the Royal Easter show in Sydney, but like a religious Royal Easter show. I remember when I was young and uh, used to go along, the, one of the highlights of my year was to go to the Easter show and uh, we used to come back with like, Massive amounts of show bags. It was like, you know, they were really cheap in those days. And um, they, they used to just load them up with a whole bunch of goodies. And, 
and used to come back. But it was like, it, it was, it was a, a, a time uh, which was just, it was a lot of fun. And there was a lot of people and there was a lot of action. And this was a time that Jesus came into the temple. And the historians say that around two to 300,000 would come. Uh, in, at the time of Passover, they would come into the temple and they would bring their money and that they would use that money and they would change it uh, into temple currency. And it was a big money spinner. In fact, it was, uh, it, the whole thing was even guarded by the Romans and they would take a portion of the tax. And uh, every, every year uh, they were encouraged Every family was encouraged to purchase a lamb and they would take that lamb and they would give it to a priest. There were thousands of priests operating in this festivity and the priest would take it and cook the lamb while they stayed there and then would bring the lamb back and they would have their lunch. If they couldn't afford a lamb, then they would uh, purchase a dove or a pigeon and, and they would cook that pigeon and uh, they would, would eat it. So it, it became what was meant uh, to be an opportunity for the people to seek God and know God. It, through tradition and through years and through um, manipulation of money and finances, the whole thing just became like a big money spinner. And it was the... To be a priest in those days was the most lucrative career that one could enter into. So it was so far from the reality of God's plan and God's original purpose that the tribe of Levi, the priest, priestly tribe of Levi, was to set apart their lives to help the people know God. And it went down through, through the ages, through the years, corruption had come into the priesthood corruption had come into the religion and and such is the case today the original group of 12 men that jesus raised up went out as a powerhouse with authentic the reality of the authentic authenticity of the risen christ but then religion came in and we went through the dark ages and we set up a form of godliness, but denied the power thereof. And these are the days that God is bringing a renewal to his church. Where religion is going, we've had enough of boring, dead Christianity. Boring, dead religion that, that actually doesn't bring the reality of, of life to bear in us. But God is bringing a revival to his church. But that revival, it's going to be messy, it's going to be noisy, and it's going to be smelly. Because there's a few things that need to be sorted out. But if you would let Jesus come into the temple of your body, and you would allow him to turn over a few tables and kick a few chairs out of the way, you might see those unwanted things in your life leaving. So the very presence of the Holy Spirit could come and fill up your temple. When Jesus cast out the money changes, when he cast out the manipulation 
out of the temple, when he turned over those tables, when he turned over the seats of those who sold doves, we see change came into the atmosphere. What people had relied on for so many years became useless as Jesus prepared to give his life, as Jesus prepared himself to become the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. At this time of Passover, he removed every other crutch that was in people's lives. The crutch of religion must go. The formality of religion has to go for the reality of Christ to be manifest. And the whole earth, the Bible tells us that the earth right now is in a period of groaning. Creation itself is groaning. There's a groaning creation. There's a, there's a cry from the earth for the sons of God to be manifest. For the reality of the Christ life in a human being to be manifest. The earth right now is groaning, waiting for us to rise up in our new identity in Christ. And even at that time of Passover, it was a time where it was a harvest, a barley harvest. And barley was the crop of the day in those times. Barley was used to make bread and soups and was used in most uh, meals. But as Jesus neared the time where he was to lay his life down, I believe as he was traveling uh, towards Jerusalem, he could see the barley harvest. He could see the, the stalks beginning to flourish and the harvest starting. So even creation itself longs to manifest the Son of God, the very God who formed this world with his hands and created the universe. He's the God that created you inside your mother's womb. But he's the God that created even the barley stalks. And they come to give him glory. So Jesus came to set his people free. To set his people free from oppressors. So just as the Egyptians were slaves in Egypt for 400 years, ruled by Pharaoh and the cruel tyranny of the Egyptian taskmasters, Jesus came to a time to his people when they were ruled by Roman authority. And right at the birth of Jesus' time, at Luke chapter 2, verse 1, when Jesus was born into the world, it was a time when there was a decree went out from Caesar, who, who was the ruler of the Roman Empire, he decreed that there should be a census go out throughout the world that every person, every human being should be registered, should be registered. And do we see, what, it, what is the spirit of this? It's, a, it's rooted in a spirit of control. And do we see similar things going on in the world today, but there's nothing new under the heavens. There is this spirit that wants to control man, but Jesus came to set us free. Where there's a spirit of control and where there's been manipulation and control in our lives, there's good news because Jesus has come to set you free from that control. 
whether you be under the control of the government, whether you're under the control of a human being, whether you're under the control of a religious order or some kind of uh, inf negative influence in your life, Jesus wants to set you free today. That we can live in this world and honour those who are authority over us, but not be bound by their authority. Uh, we can live in this world in freedom because Jesus came to set us free. But what I want to draw out is that God hears the cry of his people. Just as when he heard the cry of his people in Egypt, he raised up Moses. There were those in Israel at this time that were crying out to him for him to come and manifest in their lives. And if you would cry out to him today for, the rea for his reality in your life, he will come and he will visit you. He loves to answer the cries of his children. And in Luke chapter 2, verse 25, there was a man by the name of Simeon. And the Bible tells us that he was just and devout and he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he saw the Lord Jesus Christ with his physical eyes. He was a man who was devoted. He, he devoted his life to seeing God, to seeing the reality of God. And God met his heart's desire. God met the cry of his life and Jesus came as a little baby in his mother's arms. Whatever, if you are sincere today, if you sincerely want to meet him, he will not disappoint you. He will manifest himself to you. There was a lady also by the name of Anna and she was of great age and the Bible tells us that she was a widow of 84 years and she did not depart from the temple day and night with fasting and prayers waiting for Jesus and Jesus came as a baby also in his mother's arms and when she saw him her spirit leapt up she started to give thanks because there was something special about this little baby. And instantly she spoke of him to all who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. All who looked for redemption in Israel. It's true, God is sov sovereign, but he needs an invitation to come. He won't force himself upon you. He won't reveal himself to you unless you invite him. How great is the gift of free will that he's given you? That he will even honor your free will so much he will allow you to go to eternal hell and destruction because of the gift that he gave you. But if you would for one moment turn your free will and say, reveal yourself to me then he will come and he will meet with you. I believe there's some people in this room today that are going to accept Jesus Christ. It may not happen this morning. It might happen when you're by yourself tonight in your room. But turn on 
your will and ask him to come. He will come. So Jesus went through and he demolished the religion of the day. The priesthood at that time he dismantled. Why? Because it wasn't working. They weren't representing God to the people. May he dismantle every type of false religion and every system that, God, that man has set up in his church. He loves his church. Jesus loves his church. He loves the gathering of his people. Right from an early age, Jesus wandered away from his parents and was missing for three days. And his mother and father were very worried. And when they finally caught up with him, he said to them, Did you not know I must be about my father's business? And he was found in the temple. He was found in that religious place listening to the teachers. There was a deep love in Jesus' heart for the gathering of his people. You may have been hurt by religion. You may have been manipulated and controlled in the past. Don't let that dampen your love for God's house, your love for his people. Jesus had a deep love and a passion for the house of God. In fact, he, he cleaned the temple out he, he had three years of ministry, and it's recorded twice, not once, but twice. Once, right at the start of his ministry in John chapter 2, he cleaned the temple out, and he called it his father's house. The Passover, right before he gave his life to be crucified, he also went into the temple and he referred to it as my house. So when Jesus, early on in his ministry, he referred to the temple as the Father's house. Throughout his ministry, he grew in his love for the house of God and identified it as his house. His house, the place where his people gather. There is nothing more special. There is nothing more holy on this earth than a place where his people gather. This place here is special because you make it special. You come with a sacrifice. You come with a sacrifice of praise. You come with your energy, with your emotion, with your passion. You come here to meet God. And I want to thank you for that. I want to thank you for making this place special. This place is a holy place because you are here. And because you are here, the very presence of God comes here to honor you. And as we come into his house, we come with a reverence for him. Jesus, after he cleaned out the temple the second time, he said, my house shall be called a house of prayer. 
No longer a den of thieves. No longer a place of business transaction. My house shall be called a house of prayer. A place where men and women can commune with God. A place where men and women can encounter the living God and can be transformed. That is a holy place. And when I came to know the living God, it was in a building. And there were others worshipping him. And when I encountered him, a love in my heart came, a new love that I'd never experienced before. And it was a love for the family of God. It was a love that exceeded flesh and blood, that went beyond my own family and extended to many other families. And whatever country of the world that I travel to, I find family. I find men and women who are given over to the love of God and whose lives have been transformed by the love of God. So I want to invite you to join my family. In heaven, there is no marriage between man and woman, but there's one marriage between the bride and the bridegroom. Jesus is our heavenly bridegroom. And this house is his family. And this is where we learn to pray. This is where we learn not to say religious formalities, not to clang a gong, so to speak, but it's where we encounter him, where we speak to him and where he speaks to us. So when Jesus drove out those who sold, those who did business, when he drove out those priests that were abusing the poor, that were stealing from the poor, when he drove them out, something beautiful happened. And you can read this in, in Matthew chapter 21, verse 15. That even the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did. I mean, get a picture of this. Jesus had just rocked into the temple and demolished their religion. Demolished their careers. And on the most profitable day for their businesses, they had allowed him to turn over the money changers tables. And yet... They confessed the wonderful things that Jesus did. What was the wonderful things that Jesus did? In verse 14, it says, The blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. He healed them. So when Jesus cast the spirit of Babylon... The spirit of finance, the spirit of money out of the temple, it opened a way for the supernatural power of God to be manifest in people's lives. The blind and the lame came. What was so special about that? Those blind were the ones that sat outside begging because they couldn't afford a sacrifice. 
So there was comparison in this style of worship. There was not only comparison between the rich and the the upper class and the middle class, but there was comparison between the middle class and the lower class. The middle class couldn't afford a lamb like the upper class. But the beggars, they couldn't even afford a pigeon. But what they couldn't buy with their money, Jesus came and he offered them healing. What they couldn't receive from any man, Jesus came. And the scribes and the Pharisees, they acknowledged wonderful things that he had done. My house shall be called a house of prayer. And not only that, the children came. And there was a noise from the children. No longer a noise of fighting and quarreling, but the children began to cry, Hosanna. Hosanna in the highest. And I was so blessed this morning when I saw Mr. Squiggle down here and the children coming and displaying artwork. (laughs) Mr. Squiggle. Who grew up on Mr. Squiggle? Mr. Squiggle was cool. <laughs> yeah, he was in romper room or play school or something. What was it? <laughs> he had his own show. Mr. Squiggle. Beautiful. I could never draw as a kid, but I remember seeing Mr. Squiggle. And so children know. They know... You know, really, children had no place in this old-style religion. But there's the purity of a, a child. Jesus said, let the children, let the little children come to me. So when the spirit of Babylon's cast out from the church, we see there's a release. There's a release for the children to come to Jesus. There's a release for those who had been ostracized by religious hierarchy And comparison must go. Pure-hearted worship has nothing to do with comparison. And I'd encourage you, as you come to Jesus, allow him to remove that spirit of comparison from your life. Jesus is alive. What man tries to obtain with money, Jesus came to freely give us himself. He overturns self-seeking religion. And I believe today, even in our lives, he wants to overturn self-promotion. He wants to overturn self-seeking religion, religious formalities. And he wants to make way for the poor and those who've been rejected by society to come to him. Mm. Renovation creates mess, but it brings freedom. Freedom. Remember after Jesus went into the wilderness and was tempted by the devil? Straight after that, he made a beeline for the temple. He came into the temple, and in those days, they would, I believe they would open... Uh, there would be like a podium in the center of the temple and that each day they would read through one verse 
uh, of the of the scriptures and rabbis or teachers would, would have that opportunity to be able to read the verse of that day and when Jesus came into the temple after 40 days of praying and fasting he overcame Satan head on he walked into the temple and he found as he went up to the podium that it, that the Bible was opened at Luke chapter 4 and verse verse 18 and he began to read out the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor the marginalized he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted and proclaim liberty to the captives the recovery of the sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord he then closed the book and gave it to the attendant and sat down and the Bible tells us that the eyes of all were in the synagogue were fixed on him then he began to say today this scripture is is fulfilled in your hearing So as Jesus brought about this temple renovation, the scribes, the religious leaders, were nervous because he was gaining traction with the people. They so much wanted to kill him and to end his life, but there were so many getting healed. There were so many getting blessed that they feared a revolt. But they did ask him that question, what is the sign, Jesus, that you will show us that you are from God and that you have the authority to come into this temple and turn over the religious system? And Jesus told them about the sign of the resurrection. They didn't get it at the time. But since it's Resurrection Sunday, I thought we may just quickly look what the resurrection proves in our lives before uh, we pray this morning. So what does the resurrection prove to the world? What does the resurrection of Christ prove to the world? What does Easter Sunday prove to you? Is it just a day to eat chocolate? Is it just a day to gather with family? What does it prove something? Does it mean anything to you? To understand what the resurrection proves, we have to understand about death. And right back, to understand about death, we have to go back to the first man that God created on the earth. And when God said to Adam, you can eat from any tree of the garden, but just don't eat from this particular tree. Because if you eat from this particular tree, you will die. But Adam had no, no comparison. He didn't understand what that meant because he had never died and he'd never seen anyone die. He didn't know what it was. All he knew was life. So death existed in the beginning, but it had no power. What gave death power? 
Or who gave death power? Adam gave death power. Death existed but had no power. Or death was dead. Death became alive when Adam gave it life. And how he gave it life? He disobeyed God. When Adam disobeyed God, he died. Death was activated. Until then, it was only life. We know Jesus came as the second Adam to deactivate what the first Adam activated. How did Jesus deactivate death? Well, he went back to the source of that death and he dealt with that. What was the source of death? Rebellion, sin, disobedience, whatever you want to call it. Death was activated through Adam's disobedience. Death was deactivated through the second Adam's obedience. So the resurrection shows us that sin has been dealt with. The very cause of death in humankind has been dealt with. And in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 56, you can read from the word of God if you don't believe me. The Bible tells us there, the sting of death is sin. The sting of death is sin. Sting of death is sin. Sin gives death its power. Without sin, death has no power. Death is activated through sin. If you remove the sin, you remove death. Death and sin go together. Jesus was the first to rise from the dead. Jesus was the first to overcome sin. Jesus lived a sin-free life. God required, because of Adam's sin, God required that a man should die to pay for his sin. Jesus, the Father, looked down from heaven and loved his kids so much that he couldn't bear to see us die. Put aside all the abuse that you've occurred in your life. Put aside all the disappointments. Put aside the manipulation and the control that you've experienced. And there's a Father in heaven that loves you and cares for you so much that he was not prepared for you to die. He's not prepared for you to take the punishment of your sin. So he came himself and said, I will die for you. But in order for that to happen, he had to come as a sinless person and live in this world for 30 years with no sin. Jesus did no sin. He thought no sin. And he talked no sin. He was 100% righteous, 100% pure. He was born of a virgin Mary. He didn't carry his, his, his earthly father, Joseph's bloodline, but he came with the bloodline of the, of the pure father. So when his blood shed, it made atonement for any man that would trust upon that blood. So the wrath of God was completely satisfied uh, through the blood of Jesus Christ because his blood was pure. It was holy. It was without sin. So Jesus came into the world. He lived for 30 years. He came to the Passover. He cleansed the temple. He... he, he, he Remove the religion to the day. And he, he, he just finished it up once and for all. 
and he introduced himself as the lamb, the Passover lamb. But he had one problem. He had to die, but he had no sin in him. Jesus had no sin in him. Death had, could not be activated in his life. He had a problem. He had to die, but there was nothing that could kill him. In fact, that men had tried to kill him up until that point, but he was unable to be killed. So he had to go around and collect some sin. Jesus went on a sin collection, and it started when he shared communion with his disciples in the upper room. He went through that process in the Garden of Gethsemane, absorbing the sin of mankind. We saw that he, he was soul was so distressed that he began, as he took upon himself the sin of man, as he began uh, to absorb your sin and my sin, even his sweat turned to drops of blood. He began to shed the blood even before he went to the cross. We know he went to the whipping post and began to shed blood. Any man to go through that amount of loss of blood and that amount of, of torture, physical torture, would have died before he got to the cross, but he had to wait until he had enough sin to kill him. It was on that cross that he absorbed all of mankind's sin. That's a pretty good deal. That's why they call it good news. You should be happy right now. <laughs> it's good news. So death proves the existence of sin. Resurrection, Easter Sunday, proves to the world that sin has been defeated. There is no longer, therefore, any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. O oh, death, where is your sting? Paul the Apostle had this revelation in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 30, 55, he said, O oh, death, where is your sting? It's gone. O oh, grave, where is your victory? Up until this time, you may have been fearful to walk through a graveyard. I remember my mother, in her own good interest, taught me when I was young, never, never walk over a grave. And uh, be very careful when we would go and visit in a graveyard. I was told as a young child, be careful, don't walk over a grave. Is that fear in man regarding the graveside? I mean, has any of your friends ever rung you and said, hey, do you want to come and hang out in the cemetery? <laughs> Nobody. There's a fear associated with death. All that fear is removed when we come to Christ. In fact, I remember going, walking, when I came to know God and received eternal life, the fear of death left my life. Not that I was to be stupid, but I honored life so much more. And I knew life was eternal. And, and I do love to walk through, when I get a chance, to walk through cemeteries and just to read the tombstones and look for the truth of God's word over people's lives. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? Jesus overcame sin. Therefore, he became 
the first fruits of many who sleep. First fruits of many who sleep. If you invite Jesus into your life, if you invite the blood of Jesus to cleanse you from your sin, you can have eternal life. Even though you may sleep, death is one thing that we all have in common in this room. Death is one guy that doesn't respect what family you're in. He doesn't expect how much mo- respect how much money you have in your bank. Death is no respecter of persons. Jesus came to give life and life to the full. So thank you for listening this morning. We all-